Hello and welcome to episode 9 of Film Exploration with Ash Hurry and today we'll be talking about the 1998 blockbuster film Armageddon. Directed by Michael Bay and starring Bruce Willis, Ben Affleck, Liv Tyler, Billy Bob Thornton and Steve Buscemi. This is a tough movie to do an analysis over because this is the first film I've done a podcast on that probably shouldn't be studied in film class or evaluated, just just should be enjoyed. In fact, I take that back. The film itself is studied at NASA and it's part of the basic training program there, believe it or not. And what they do is they get the trainees to watch the film and write down every single inaccurate scientific thing in the movie. I've been led to believe the list stretches over the 200 mark. But with that being said, I can't take away the enjoyment factor of this movie. This is a blockbuster picture designed to be a popcorn movie and henceforth I won't be talking about camera angles, lighting, the meaning of this shot. I'm simply taking an appreciation for a film that has now been slated for being so bad and I'll tell you my reasons why I think it's so good. I mean, deep down, most of us love this movie. It's nostalgic, but now people hate it. They, they just don't like it. Even Michael Bay, the director, regrets doing this movie. He believes the entire third act of the movie when they're in space was rushed and he didn't have enough time to do it. And he publicly criticized this point. And I think that comment he did years ago was sort of the catalyst of people hating it and pointing out mistakes and just pure negativity towards Armageddon. So I'm going to play devil's advocate here and just juice this baby up because I like it. I, in fact, I love this movie. And yes, it's not going to win any Oscars. I mean, nor did it win any Oscars. I think it might have won a few for like special effects or sound design, something like that. But it brings another angle to cinema and, and that satisfaction. And, and, that, and that's all it is. It's pure enjoyment. It's just pure goosebumps. And it's a thrill ride from beginning to end. And that is who Michael Bay is. And that is who... That is what Michael Bay does with films. And I love that he exists. A world full of, and I can't believe I'm going to say this, but a world full of Tarantinos and Scorseses would just be a little too dull. Well, not dull, but just it'd be a little bit too intense. What Michael Bay introduces to Hollywood is the flavor. He's kind of the the junk food of Hollywood, as I like to put it. So part of this Y2K trend was end of the world films in the 90s coming out in quick concessions like Independence Day, The Mummy, Volcano and of course Deep Impact which opened up the same summer although NASA said Deep Impact was scientifically more accurate than Armageddon by a country mile which made no difference to moviegoers whatsoever where Armageddon triumphed over the summer earning over 500 million at the box office Critics slated this movie. There was competition of another asteroid movie coming out two months later. And also the director, Michael Bay, publicly apologised for making this movie. And despite all of this, the movie was an achievement, which is a very interesting thing. And in my opinion, not that surprising. I think the film was amazing. It was the perfect blockbuster movie to watch over the summer to just let loose. And just, you know, and the figures don't lie. No matter how many people hate this movie, you can't deny the attraction it had, or still has. This was the first ever DVD I bought back in 1998, and it was one of my most prized possessions. I still have it. It was a two-disc special edition, and so I listened to the audio commentary, and I watched behind the scenes over and over again. This was the film of the decade for me at that age. Of course, now it's a little bit different, the more and more I understand the art of filmmaking. So this whole podcast is a sort of nostalgic throwback to this disaster movie. So yeah, it was... um. It's quite interesting to have two Asteroid movies come out in 1998, like two months apart, which, by the way, Deep Impact is on Netflix now. 
in case you want to watch it. And Armageddon, I think, is on Now TV or Sky, same thing. But yeah. But yes, asteroid movies always brought a certain appeal because it was a scary notion to think about and to know it's happened before and it will probably happen again, which is why Charlton Heston's narration at the start of the movie was so unnerving and tense. I mean, I wonder how much they paid Charlton Heston to narrate that opening. I don't I don't know, actually, probably probably quite a bit. But yeah, this specific sci-fi genre fed on the deep fears of people thinking the world would end one day by an asteroid because the really scary thing about this is we have basically proven or theorized that this has happened before. So it adds that realism which creates more fear, which creates a more tense journey when watching this movie. I mean, if we look at the history quickly, I mean, disaster movies really picked up in the 70s. That was sort of their golden age. I mean, there was one like every year. That was its decade. But if you look back at the history of cinema, though, you can actually see a disaster movie almost at the beginning of moving pictures. I think it was a film, what was it? It was a film called Fire in 1901. It was a British film, actually. And it's like five minutes long. And it's, it's just about a bunch of firefighters saving a house in Hove, of all places. And that is probably the first ever known disaster movie ever to be made. And from this early creation, the genre kind of spawned others to look at this sort of interesting genre of survival against natural disasters or like the elements, wind, water, fire, even disasters through man-made incidents, you know, like the sinking of the Titanic in 1912, was it 1910s, it was early though. And as disastrous as the Titanic sinking was, it kind of gave ideas to like auteurs and filmmakers to recreate this disaster as a piece of cinema amongst many others. I mean, the silent era experimented heavily with this, even making a Titanic movie, I mean, amongst others. And as the decades went on, we started getting flood movies like a Deluge in 1933. And then, of course, we had an earthquake movie called, funny enough, Earthquake. And the really early one, I think it was in the early 90s, 1935, 36, it was called San Francisco. And I believe the wind element was first used in the hurricane in 1937. I think it was John Ford who did it or he was in it. And obviously now the wind genre has gone into a genre of its own, most notably with Twister in 96 and obviously these TV tornado movies that keep coming out. But the thing about the 1970s was that the genre was kicked off really early on. Like in 1970, there was a film called Airport that came out and it was such a hit. It told these desperate struggles of getting to the airport and it was intertwining with stories on the plane, stories at the airport, uh, air traffic control. And then there was actually a suicide bomber in the movie. And it was um, a really good way of doing it. It was a really tense movie and it was an absolute success. And I think it made three sequels in that decade as well. And it was such a hit. And this sort of started this, this, you know, this disaster golden age in the 70s. And, you know, this made others realize that something of this kind of genre was a box office hit and it was making money and people wanted to see it and people were talking about it. So other filmmakers joined in. Some were successful, others not so much. But nonetheless, the 70s produced the highest amount of disaster movies because Airport came out in 1970 and even before 1975, we had so many other famous uh, disaster movies coming. I mean, The Poseidon Adventures came out, and it had Gene Hackman. I don't think people really knew who Gene Hackman was, but, you know, um, they knew him. He was, you know, starting out, and that was in 72, and that was a box office hit. And then I think Poseidon Adventures was actually originally a novel. I can't remember who wrote it, but um, the, I think the, I read that the author was on board the Queen Mary, and a large wave hit it on the side. Um, it tilted it. It didn't turn the boat, uh, the ship upside down like it does in Poseidon, but that sort of... Um, spurred him to write the Poseidon Adventures. And then, obviously, it was later remade in uh, 2006, around then, with Kurt Russell. 
And then, you know, in 1974, an um, earthquake movie came out. It was San, San Fernandino or San Fernando. And that um, they had a massive earthquake, actually, in 1971. Um, so that sort of inspired them to do an earthquake movie. And I think the director or the creator of the movie Earthquake, Mark Robson, um, he was quite interested in doing a disaster movie that wasn't too confined to... An, it wasn't confined to, like, an airliner or a tight space because, obviously, we had airport come out and um he'd rather take you know he'd rather take a disaster movie take place over like a large area hence the birth of earthquake but by then uh, um airport already had its sequels come out and words of others were coming out so people were really expanding on the genre and remember some of these were actually inspired by actual events i mean the tsunami that hit prince william in alaska in 1964 i think it only took the lives of seven people but i think it's actually the the biggest recorded tidal wave not even though not many people um died it was still a massive disaster and, you know, these kind of events that hit the news back in the 60s and 70s was in the back of people's minds, and especially of filmmakers to do a big wave movie or tsunami movie. And I think Japan was the first one to sort of do it um, with the water genre because they did a movie called Tidal Wave in the mid-70s. And it was the same company that did Godzilla in the 50s, so they were somewhat familiar with this disaster style of filmmaking. And then the 70s took a massive swing when Towering Inferno came out, which is simply about building on fire, trapping people inside. Most notably, the fame of this movie was the two hottest actors at the time were in this movie, Paul Newman and Steve McQueen. I mean, they, they had a massive debate of whose name was going to come first to the credits, so they had them both on at the same time, one higher, one lower, but the one that was lower was first. So it was, uh, it was a cool thing to talk about. And, you know, and all of this before 1975, and obviously this... This disaster movie in buildings sort of got inspired later on for films like Die Hard and Skyscraper. And after Towering Inferno came out, the bar was sort of met there because of the star quality it had and the simplicity of the disaster as merely a backdrop to the characters in this movie. Of course, you had Fred Astaire in this film and even O.J. Simpson, who actually went on to star in another disaster movie in the 70s called The Cassandra Crossing, which is about... I think it's like a runaway train with a biological weapon. I've only watched half of it, but that was sort of the premise of it. It's kind of like Tony Scott's last film, Unstoppable, with Denzel. But yeah, half of the 70s are really trying to, you know, you know, trump Towering Inferno. You had movies like Avalanche come out, The Swarm, you know, about some killer bees, which, was, um, which had a young Michael Caine in it, actually. And that even had The Hurricane was remade. There were remakes of disaster movies. I think John Ford's uh, Hurricane still triumph, even with the technological handicap he had, I think... The 30s hurricane is a lot better than the 70s. So it was really kicking off in the 70s. I mean, generally, studios wait for a disaster and then they do a movie. We've seen evidence of these exploits in films all the time. I mean, if you just have to look at, you know, Titanic, The Impossible, World Trade Center, Everest, and some events that are scientifically predicted to happen but not yet happen yet, and they've made films about it. Like, there's a Norwegian film called The Wave. I think it's a fantastic film if you haven't seen it. That's on Amazon Prime. Uh, Prime. Watch that if you can. It has a sequel as well. It's really good. And even films like Deep Impact and Armageddon, The Day After Tomorrow, they fall under that category because they're, they're like these overemphasized creations of what scientists have predicted, which Hollywood realizes sells tickets, which is why Independence Day sold so many tickets, because not only was it a, a, a disaster movie, but it was also an alien movie. And alien genres are becoming really massive for the very same reason, like the fear of it being possible, but very unlikely. So yeah, like I said, I mean, we had this revival at the end of the world films because of the millennium, and then we had Armageddon come out, and somehow Deep Impact was also coming out the same month. I mean, talk about competition. I mean, before those two, there weren't really many meteor asteroid films that had been done properly. I think the first one they really tackled was in the, the 50s. There was a film called The Day the Earth Exploded, and then 
Meteor came out at the end of the 70s and then that was it and then boom 1998 and then we got two renowned movies in that sci-fi genre of Deep Impact and uh, Armageddon so let's uh, let's talk about Armageddon for a bit I've been rambling on about disaster movies I mean First off, it was done by probably one of the best directors who could have done a movie like this. He, he was like the Joel Schumacher of Batman movies to what Bay is with disasters. It's very hard to do a disaster movie well. I mean, I think personally the best one I've seen was Twister. I love Twister. I mean, interesting fact for you, Twister was the first film to be released on DVD, which is why I have it on DVD and I'm never going to get rid of it. So it's a little cool thing. If you do have it, I mean, keep it. Don't do anything with it. But yeah, it's hard. Um, it's hard to do. It's hard to do it well, that genre. I mean, it would be interesting to see Nolan, Christopher Nolan do one properly. I mean, I mean, he, he kind of did with Interstellar in some parts of Inception, but he's very story driven, Mr. Nolan. So, I mean, the story usually revolves around the disaster, warning people about disaster. And that's usually the general, uh, general plot of a disaster movie. So Armageddon, you know, Michael Bay. For Michael Bay, it's not, you know, for me, for him, I, I, I don't rate Transformers. Um, it's his first five films that I really rate him on, you know. Bad Boys, The Rock, Armageddon, Pearl Harbor, and Bad Boys 2. That's it. I don't care about uh, the others, you know. When they all have, you know, what they all have in common is Jerry Bruckheimer produced him. And, um, you know, after Bad Boys 2, he did The Island and then The Transformers and he just went crazy. Although saying that, 13 Hours was actually quite a good film and so was Six Underground. So he's sort of getting back to his groove. But if you haven't seen Armageddon, it's about an asteroid the size of Texas. Bear in mind, the ones that killed the dinosaurs is only about two, three miles wide. So I have no idea why he's made it the size of Texas. But anyway, let's just go with it. So it's about the size of Texas, apparently, which is going to hit Earth in 18 days. So they come up with an idea from the leading experts that if you detonate it from the inside, you split the asteroid and it will, the, the two halves will miss the Earth, conveniently. But there you go. Therefore, they have to get the best deep core oil drillers to do this, who is played by Bruce Willis. And he says to Billy Bob Thornton, who's the, like, the NASA director, you know, I, I can't do this. Um, I can't do this to um, I can't do this job unless you bring my entire crew up with me. His crew, not exactly NASA material, but they will get the job done. So we have the platform for Armageddon. So you have a bit of referencing from the wrong or the right stuff, and you know, this sort of you know, funny you know, you know these these lads basically. And the cast is something we should talk about. It is packed with the utmost acting quality in this movie from. Bruce Willis, Billy Bob Thornton, Liv Tyler, Ben Affleck, Owen Wilson, Steve Buscemi, Steve, Peter Stormont, Michael Clark Duncan, William Fincher. It is jam-packed with names. Some early in their careers, others not. Even got an early writing credit from J.J. Abrahams in this, who's, who we know is now the director of the new Star Trek and Star Wars. We have Aerosmith providing the iconic song, I Don't Want to Miss a Thing, whose daughter is in the movie. We have cameos from Charlton Heston and Michael Bay himself in this film. So this didn't have to do much to sell tickets other than show all of those qualities in a trailer. Kind of like how Steve McQueen and Paul Newman sold tickets for Towering Inferno. I mean, the story is flawed in many places, but it covers a lot of ground in two and a half hours. And this is only done because Michael Bay did like three montages in this movie from the, the recruiting montage, which is by far one of the best montages when they're all scattered and they have to get everyone from like Owen Wilson in the ranch field to chick gambling at caesar's palace you know and then they've got the training montage which is very classic and it's very funny as well and then and then again we have the day off montage you know where they all sprawl again and have a day off before they go up to the asteroids so it's done in a way where bay makes it possible so we can follow these characters and we follow like six or seven characters in one movie and we know their story 
And that's very hard to do. So you have to give it up for Michael Bay for doing this. I mean, Avengers was really the one to tackle this next. And they needed 21 movies to even set that movie up. And Michael Bay did it in one movie. So you have to appreciate what he did with so many people. From Bruce Willis's, you know, from Bruce Willis, he's the action hero. And his relationship with his daughter, who has a relationship with Ben Affleck, his crew members. And then Bruce Willis has this sort of father-son relationship with uh, Ben Affleck that hates him at the same time. And then he has crew members, of course. He has this relationship with um, all the others because, you know, he has, he's, he's essentially bringing the crew on board. So you have to trust that he has a sort of background with all of them. And then he has um, a relationship with Colonel Sharp and his sort of interactions with um, Billy Bob Thornton's character. And that's just one character. That's just Bruce Willis. And you've got Ben Affleck with all his relationships with the characters, Liv Tyler, Billy Bob Thornton. It's just so crowned, but it's done in a way where we can follow it. And I don't think much appreciation is given to how he's managed to do this and still make this film successful. The love story between Ben and Liv um, wasn't originally in the script. The scenes were added in because of the success of Titanic the year before. So what they did to sort of add those scenes in was to cut down more of Harry Truman's scene, played by Billy Bob Thornton. And even with those scenes cut, I still, I still think he's the best character in the movie. I mean, I've watched the deleted scenes and there are more scenes explaining his character and how he wanted to go into space. And um, because he, uh, the reason why Bruce Willis gives him the badge at the end is because there's a, a deleted scene where he really tells Bruce Willis, look, I really wanted to go into space. Um, and he had a, um, I think it was a crippling nerve damage as a teen um, when he was training to be an astronaut. And that's what stopped him from going. But, um, you know, even with all this backstory, um, his scenes that remain in, on, on the final cut are, you know, the sort of glue that holds the whole movie together. And I think Billy Bob Thornton is probably one of the best characters in the movie. But the thing is, if you didn't have the love aspect of the movie, then the song I Don't Want to Miss a Thing wouldn't have existed. So you've got to take the good with the bad. And Michael knew this. Um, he knew that this love story would sell tickets. It was basically the main part of the trailer. To save the world, you need something to save. So I thought it was a good move on Michael Bay's part. And, you know, Michael Bay, I mean, he wasn't the most popular guy on set. I mean, Bruce Willis publicly said he wouldn't work with him again. However, Michael Bay, received, you know, he basically revived Bruce Willis's career from this movie. He was doing a failed comedy before Armageddon on Broadway, um, and he had to find a way to get out of it because it was really bombing. Bruce Willis was having an awful time at Broadway. I think it was called Broadway Brawler. Anyways, Disney stepped in and said, if you star in Armageddon and two future movies for the studio in an exchange... We will cover the cost of the failure and the Broadway show has an advance on his starting salary. Which was like, well, Jesus Christ, Bruce Willis was laughing. By the way, I bet you died I bet you guys didn't know Armageddon was a Disney movie, did you? It was the highest grossing Disney movie at the time. That's a pretty cool trivia for you. Anyways, the reason why I say Bear, Bear Michael Bay revived Bruce Willis, or perhaps I should say Disney, was um the other two films after Armageddon, that was part of the deal, happened to be the Sixth Sense and Unbreakable. Arguably if you don't count Die Hard, his most famous roles. And I think Unbreakable, in my opinion, is his best performance as an actor. So that's another reason why I like this film. It kick-started a good actor back onto the limelight. And Michael Bay was very authentic with some things and not so much of others, but he knew that. You see, Michael Bay was working with real oil rigs and working with real space shuttles. I mean, the shuttles actually took off for real in the movie. It was quoted in the magazine. The crew was working around $19 billion worth of equipment. The spacesuits the 14 actors wore were genuine spacesuits. There were actually two other spacesuits used in the movie. I don't know who was wearing it. I think it was Bruce Willis. They were worth $10 million alone. You see, 
with the sort of patriotic nature of the script and how successful Top Gun was at the box office and, with, and how they recruited for the army when the movie was out, producers actually convinced NASA to let Michael Bay shoot in restricted areas at NASA, hence the real and really expensive spacesuits and the real shuttle. Even the 40-foot deep pool is the real one they used to train astronaut, uh, astronauts for weightlessness. It's around 65 million gallons of water. They were even allowed to shoot at the launch pad that Apollo 1 was at before its disaster, which is... I don't think anyone's ever done before. So in terms of people slating this movie for mistakes, there is a lot of appreciation from it too. And Michael Bay even acknowledged a lot of the errors in this film too. For instance, the fire in, the, in space, he said, yeah, fine. It's a movie and not many people know about that. So they're sort of kept in for entertainment value. Nowadays, people just love to rip movies apart rather than enjoy them. I mean, the movie does keep true to a lot of things like when they duct tape Rockhound because he has space dementia, which I thought was actually quite funny because... If you have to restrain someone in NASA, uh, in, in space, apparently it's NASA protocol to use duct tape. So that was actually accurate. But look, it's unfortunate to hear about the criticism about this movie. But for me, it was an introduction to what an action movie really is. And there is no reason why the asteroid genre hasn't really been done since. It's hard to do. The movie focuses on heavy special effects with a great cast and a story that we can follow. But besides that, people just choose to look at the mistakes because that's what people do now. That's what people are now. Instead of naturally enjoying, you know, in naturally enjoying a journey, we nitpick, and that's fine to a degree. But there's no denying this film did its job when it came out. I mean, we aren't even alone. Ben Affleck had a real issue with the plot. He even said to Michael Bay, "Wouldn't it be easier for NASA to train astronauts how to drill rather than training drillers to be astronauts?" And Bay just basically told Affleck to shut up. And I think the reason behind sending drillers rather than uh, training astronauts is explained in the movie. But look, I just I just think that even with the critics being against him, most of the actors, even most of us, even stick from other studios, Michael Bay stuck with his guns. And I think deep down he knew, you know, that despite all the problems and criticisms, that his version of the movie would survive. He fundamentally, you know, he fundamentally sugarcoated the movie with a great one with great one-liners, great montages, great actors, massive explosions, even in space. And he's produced a film that will actually stand the test of time because it is specific. It's in a specific subgenre. It's it holds supreme. There's no, I don't think there's a better asteroid film out at the moment, and one hasn't been done since it's come out, and that was in 1998. So that's 22 years. Why do you think they haven't done another asteroid movie yet? But sometimes you just have to enjoy the ride. Otherwise, what's the point in going on it? I mean, I'll put my hands up and say I still love this movie. Nostalgic or not, it, it, it does the job for me when I put this movie on. But look, well, that's all I really have time for with Armageddon. I mean, give it a go. If you're ever feeling down or just blare, it's a good movie. I mean, just pick it up. Just You can really lose yourself in two hours. And it's on Now TV um, or Sky if you have it. So give it a go if you want. Anyway, season one is almost over now, so I've just got one more film later, and then um, then I'll be moving on to season two, where I'll be doing 90, um, 80s films. So, um, yeah, you can find my other podcast on my website and check my Instagram, Film Exploration AH, for any updates on film news or my upcoming podcasts. So that's all today, and thank you for listening to Film Exploration with Ash Hurry. Hurry.